The content here is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as medical advice. Please consult a healthcare professional with any medical questions and concerns. If you are experiencing an emergency or need immediate help, call 911. In no way does listening, reading, emailing, or interacting on social media with our content establish a therapeutic relationship. I just get so angry. It's hard to sit still. I don't want to be this way. My brain just feels all scrambled. Welcome to Scrambled. I'm your co-host, Nikki Shields. And I'm Chad Douglas. This is episode 32, The Faces of Anxiety. Hi, Nikki. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well. And yourself? (laughs) Pretty good. Pretty good. good. I'm excited for this episode because, well, it turns out anxiety is, in fact, as we've said before, a shapeshifter. And uh, for this one, we're going to talk about all the different things that could indicate anxiety. Okay, so shapeshifter, you would think wouldn't have a face, but this does, and it, it it gets to where it has more than just one face because we've talked about many times in the past of you might see something that comes out as anxiety and you kind of treat it and work through it with therapy and, and such, and then all of a sudden it looks like something different. So <laughs> hence the shapeshifting and also, uh, you know, I think of like the, the Batman villain Two-Face where he flips the coin, but this little bad guy has more than two faces. Mm-hmm. Yes, anxiety can look very different from person to person or from child to child. And so for our purposes, we will talk about what you might see in children. But, you know, with lots of other things that we've talked about, you could apply this to adults and and any any other, you know, age group as well. Anxiety looks different from person to person. So we're going to break down. There are seven different faces of anxiety that I've counted. Seven that you've counted. Okay, so there could be more. Yes. So your challenge for this episode is to see if you can identify some that I haven't. So see if you can bring it to a nice, even eight. Oh, okay. Um, Do we do like a a Letterman countdown and do like seven to one or do we start with number one? I I think, I think it doesn't matter. I (laughs) (laughs) let's, let's flip that coin. Just like the, uh, the Batman villain two face there. Yeah. All right. We'll lay one on me and we'll, we'll just go with it. Okay, so I'm going to start with the most traditional face of anxiety. So this might be what the average person would expect if a child had some underlying anxiety. And that is a child who is quiet or withdrawn, maybe appears shy, maybe doesn't speak up, um, might be maybe more of a loner or will only talk when they're with a couple of peers, maybe not comfortable in a group, just just the the silent sort. And so I think that's what a lot of people expect anxiety look, to look like. And the reality is that's just a portion of it. There are some kids that meet that criteria and have anxiety, but there are some kids that look very different than that and also meet the criteria for a diagnosis. And I know we've talked about this in the past, but how do you distinguish between someone who is just inherently shy versus they have anxiety. So it always comes back to the, the their ability to function. So how is it impacting their life? If they're shy, but they're doing well and they are reportedly and observed to be happy and you know their needs are being met and they're communicating effectively with the people that they do need to communicate with and it's not causing them distress or leading to you know problems in their life might just be a shy kid and that's okay. But if it's, you know, getting in the way of their schooling or their social skill development or causing problems at home or there's other other things going on, that shyness is is possibly a red flag for something more. It just, it depends on the severity of the distress that is being caused by it. And how would you define shyness? I mean, I definitely don't have my dictionary in front of me, but <laughs> shy, you know, inhibited, you know, not, you know, takes a minute to warm up, um, 
not the not the first to speak up in a situation, maybe, you know, looking down or like bashful would be another word. And so you can be those things mm-hmm. and not be shy at all. And I know with one of my kiddos, there was a phase in her life when she she would seem almost mute at times. She would not mm-hmm. speak. But once you got her started, then she, she wouldn't stop. She wouldn't shut up. Right? So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, to date, she doesn't really have any signs or symptoms um, that would indicate anxiety. So I think that was just a period of shyness. She hadn't yet found her voice. <laughs> She's found it. <laughs> She's found it. It's there. So yeah. you have mentioned in past episodes, you were a, an anxious kiddo. Mm-hmm. I was not. Um, but I've also, we did this, uh, the, the episode family matters with the Beeler family and, and both those parents said, you know, as we started looking into this for our son, we're like, gosh, I think we had childhood anxiety. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm starting to kind of mill this around because I'm putting myself in the classroom and I'm like, I don't want to read in front of everybody. Mm-hmm. I don't want to speak to strangers. Um, you have certain kids now that are just have have personality, right? They'll go up and they'll just talk or they'll perform and they're in theater. And then you have other ones who are just quiet and reserved. And I would say pretty typical for being a child of that age because they're learning the ways of the world. They're learning the social structure of our community. But it's just, it's a, is it a fine line of shyness versus anxiety or am I overthinking it? Well, I, you're, you're not overthinking it because it is it is a fine line. It's really, it, it's hard to tell. And I, I think you have to really get to know the kid or, or you know, be connected to them and, the, and what their situation is to really get an idea. Because, you know, I, I definitely have met kids who didn't like reading in class or didn't like presenting in front of their classmates or going up to, yeah, I was talking with a kid last week about going to the board and having to do a problem on the board in front of the class. And, you know, that's an anxiety provoking situation for anyone really, because it's, it's performance anxiety at that point. It's, it's having, you know, I don't want to make a mistake. I don't want to embarrass myself. And that can be normal. That doesn't have to be a sign of an anxiety disorder, but it's, you look at the pattern of behavior, you look at the, the trends in the child's reactions to things. And so if that, you know, shyness, that quietness is resulting in, you know, problematic levels in other areas of their life, then we may be more inclined to look at it as a sign of anxiety. If they're happy and have friends and doing well in school and it's, it's not causing them to, to experience distress, no problem. You know, they'll probably find their voice come out of their shell eventually, but, but it is very difficult to know. And parents just kind of have to know their kid and, you know, check on things. And, you know, teachers can tell too. You know, teachers, typically would be able to tell you a shy child from an anxious child, uh, just, just because they can kind of see where they open up and where they don't. And so quiet, withdrawn, and shy can be a sign of anxiety, but it can also just be a personality characteristic. Sure. And when your kiddos spend seven hours in school with that teacher, they're going to know your kid um, arguably, probably almost as well as you do, uh, mm-hmm. keyword there at almost, because you, you know, you've known them before they went to school, but that's a lot of time to spend with someone else when, when you're working. It's kind of mm-hmm. like the old saying of uh, you might know your coworkers better than your own family because you're with them all day. So <laughs> true, kind of a, a thing there. All right. Another face. Another face. So we're going to kind of, you know, you know, bounce to the other side of the spectrum here and kids who appear angry and irritable frequently, uh, irritable with, you know, their peers or with things or tasks, uh, irritable with teachers or other adults. And just, just tend to be, that can be an underlying sign of anxiety. Anxiety can surface as anger. It can surface as Mm -hmm. irritability. This is where it starts to get just even more murky because depression can surface as irritability and anger in kids too. So it's important, again, to pay attention to the trend, pay attention to the overall patterns of behaviors and, and, you know, dig deeper. When you see a child that's angry or irritable on a regular basis, it's important to figure out what's going on there. Uh, More often than not, I mean, 
irritability and anger can demonstrate like a lack of skill, something, you know, a skill that is needed in order to handle that particular situation better. But if it's a pattern and you're seeing it in lots of places or in situations where that child seems extra tense, or there could be kind of some performance things going on or something that they're worrying about, then we might be able to link it back to anxiety. I remember back in that episode, we just talked about the family matters with the Beeler family. They, uh, the mom, Tara had mentioned that her son was such a happy baby and smiling all the time. And then one day it was like something just clicked and he was getting angry for no reason and ex- exhibiting a lot of strong anger. And that's what was their first indication mm-hmm. that something um, wasn't quite right there. So they had him test and everything came out uh, to be anxiety. So mm-hmm. they got to learn all about it. And if you haven't listened to that episode, it's a, it's a pretty good episode. It was early on, man. It was yeah. like episode like five or six or something like that. Yeah. So. And now here we are on 32. Um, So anger and irritability, and that's another one that's hard when you talk about age. If you look at kiddos, like in that family, it was like a toddler that started to show those signs. But if you start seeing it in adolescence, uh, preteen, teen years, how do you go, gosh, this must be what the teen years are, or conversely, the terrible twos, the three nagers. It's like, how do you say, okay, this might be an issue we need to bring up to our doctor, or this is just age appropriate mm-hmm. learning. Well, it's it's possible that we're uh, you know tapping onto a, a topic for another episode because it is it is often very difficult to tell the difference between an age appropriate struggle and a de- or a developmental you know sort of phase and an underlying you know condition or disorder. And so with anger and irritability, again, you're you're going to look at the trends. And so, um, like you said, the the family that we talked with, things had been pretty good, and then they weren't. And so mm-hmm. then that was a red flag. And so then they spoke with their doctor and that that's, that's what you do is you watch. If there's a change in behavior, then it's something to pay attention to. And it could indicate an underlying thing that's going on. But sometimes irritability and anger are just part of, you know, being human. And, and, and so it's, it can be very, very difficult. And so again, you look for the trends. If you see a child that's irritable and angry and you're starting to see it more and more and more, you know, take notes, track it, notice it. Um, and if it continues, you know, a conversation about what's going on, you know, in those moments when I see you, you know, looks like you're really frustrated what's happening for you. Um, that can be very powerful in unlocking it because sometimes if you've got a kid who's super verbal, he or she might be able to say, you know, I was worried about whatever and they were bothering me. And I, I know for me, this is, you mentioned earlier, I was an anxious kid. I did not show irritability and anger then, but as an adult, when my anxiety surfaces, it is more irritability and anger. And it's, it's, it's almost like, um, frustration. It it just, you know, peaks because I'm, I'm worried about something at the same time that I'm trying to like do something else. And so it just sort of erupts out as irritability or snappiness. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that is not uncommon for people, you know, and parents and adults worry all the time. You may not, they may not experience it as clinical anxiety, but they, but they're still, you know, worrying about various things. And so that can come out as, as irritability or frustration or anger. Mm-hmm. And if I'm being really honest, you know, anytime I lose my temper, almost always there was some kind of worry underneath it. And so for kids, that's part of it is if, if they're demonstrating it in that way and you sense that worry is a part of it, it's a good idea to have conversations, consult a counselor, talk to your primary care physician, pediatrician, get some information about you know what might be going on and, and some ideas for trying to unpack some of that. And I think the thing too, Nikki, that I see as an underlying theme so far, the two faces we've seen, and we have five to go, is that if it's if it just affects their life so much, if it's all encompassing, they're not doing things they used to do because they're getting frustrated or because they're too shy, that's when the red flags start mm-hmm. popping up. Yeah. 
yep, it's if it's causing distress, if it's, you know, interfering with day-to-day functioning, then it's worth your attention. And and again, it it doesn't always matter what you call it when when you first see it. You just you just need to recognize that something's not going very well and you need to uncover it because maybe it is developmentally appropriate. Maybe it is a short-term phase, but you still want to watch and have conversations about it and kind of going back to our episode with Rebecca Rowland, you know, using some of the skills in her book can be a very helpful way to get underneath whatever the thing is that you're seeing, whether it's a shy child who doesn't say very much or an angry or irritable child that's just, you know, emoting more aggressively all, all the time, all of a sudden. Those those tips in her books, or her book, sorry, can absolutely help you get yeah. to the bottom of some of it. Because your attitude and your conversation is going to guide that. And I know we've talked about in the past too about, you know, checking your emotions at the door. Got to keep it in every episode, Nick. I just have to. Uh, <laughs> but it's like when you are met with some sort of anger, whether it's with a child, a coworker, or whatever, your natural instinct is to get defensive and get mm-hmm. angry too, because you've got to match their stuff. But if you match them with calmness, and I say that out loud, so I hear it. If you match them with calmness, <laughs> it can be a big difference, but gosh, that's hard. It's so hard. And I, I think too, that a lot of anxiety diagnoses get missed in kids who demonstrate their anxiety as more anger and irritability, because when they are being irritable, they are being angry they're being met with someone else's frustration as well. Whereas if you've got a a child who's sitting quietly at their desk and not really interacting with the other kids, you come at them with this sort of compassionate, Oh, are you okay? You know, what's going on? But if you've got a child who's snapping at you or just is cranky all the time, your, your compassion is going to be harder to find. And so I do think for lots of kids who show it in that way, that diagnosis takes a while to get to. Uh, because that is not what people assume. And so that's why that's why I think this episode is really important because we can very easily miss something because of the way we respond to it. All right, moving on to number three face. Okay, so this is actually, we're not going to bounce around much. We're going to go right into oppositional defiant. Okay. So, you know, and I differentiate angry and irritable from oppositional and defiant because you can have a child who's angry and crabby or irritable, but that doesn't mean that they're defying you or that they're being oppositional or difficult intentionally. It just means they're upset or angry. Um, a child who's oppositional or defiant is going to push back. You're going to get a little more resistance. You're going to get some, you know, some maybe disrespectful behavior. You're going to see more potentially physical acting out. Um, you've mentioned, you know, kicking chairs and doing different things like that in the classroom. And, and we oftentimes don't don't see that as a sign of anxiety, but it is. For a child whose anxiety surfaces as oppositional and defiant, underneath those behaviors is typically a a sense of insecurity, a sense of, I don't feel safe. I don't feel physically safe, emotionally safe. I don't know how to handle the situation. I don't know what's expected of me right now. I don't know who can protect me right now. There's all kinds of worries underneath that behavior. And so we are quick to get frustrated with that kind of behavior. And it, it takes a long time to see, oh, wait, that might actually be anxiety. And so I wanted to make sure to throw that. And like you said, those two kind of blend together because mm-hmm. I'm assuming now that you could have one or two, maybe three different types of these faces in your anxiety disorder. Mm-hmm. Yes. You could have kids who maybe at school, they don't really demonstrate a whole lot, but at home you're getting some oppositional and defiant kinds of behaviors or, you know, um, we'll get to Vice some of versa. the other things but Yeah, the <laughs> other way around. And I want to be clear, we we have referenced oppositional defiant disorder in previous episodes. Yeah. And so that's not what I'm talking about here. This is not a kid who is, you know, breaking rules everywhere and defying, you know, the rights of others and things like that. This, this is a kid who in anxiety provoking situations is showing it as, you know, pushback or argumentativeness or, you know, being oppositional in some way. Um, number four, socially awkward. So socially awkward is, you know, that is obviously not 
<laughs> a diagnosis is in and, in and of itself, but it certainly can be a characteristic of many different things. Mm-hmm. And for some people, and this is like, I know a lot of adults that can relate to this. Um, it's, you know, when somebody says, you know, hi, and you just say, well, thank you, or <laughs> you're, you're yeah, leaving well. and they have a good night, you know, whatever you too. But then like, that's not what they said. They said, you know, um, in, enjoy your ride home. You too. Good to you see know, just, you. Yeah. 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 Good, good to, to see you. See Thanks. You. you too. You know, like it, just those awkward boy. I, I butchered that. There's well, just no way around it. That didn't go well. Well, because you're socially awkward. <laughs> I'm socially awkward. See, see, I like to demonstrate what I'm talking yes, about. There you you go. can experience it. But the, I think the problem is that I do these things so often that it's it's just na- second nature for me. So socially awkward is a sign of anxiety in that kids are overthinking what they're supposed to say and do. They're second guessing themselves. They're not sure what the other person expects. And they're worried about making a mistake. And they're worried about being made fun of. And they're worried other people are going to think they're weird. So they end up behaving in exactly those ways. And then and then they walk away going, uh, I'm never talking again. And a lot of times social awareness kind of starts in about second grade where kids are realizing different things about each other. And then as they get older, it just grows and they get into the puberty stage and it's a whole awkward thing. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's like the part of their brain that that notices that other people are noticing them that kicks off. And right. so there's several years of weirdness for them before they're like, oh, I actually don't care what other people think. I'm cool. I, it doesn't yeah. matter. Or like um, a haircut. I've got a bad haircut. So everyone's so like going to clearly make everybody. fun of me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We've all yeah. been there. We have. We've quite literally been there. Uh, so socially awkward is is something that you know, if you've got a child who's really struggling socially and it, it seems they're trying, but they just can't quite nail these social situations very well, um, there could be some underlying anxiety. And I, I do want to take one quick step back and just say that, like, anxiety doesn't have to be a diagnosis. Like, you could okay. see any of these things in a child and it could be a sign of them having anxiety in that moment, but it doesn't mean they have a disorder. And so that's where this stuff can get really tricky. But still understanding it is anxiety gives teachers and parents and other adults in their lives an idea about how to respond to it. Well, that's like we've talked about. It's when it starts kind of encompassing their life is mm-hmm. when you probably need to get it checked out. Yep. All right. Well, let's let's continue down the line here. All right. Well, the fifth face of anxiety that I have identified is the kid who is just super tired all the time. Maybe they yawn a lot. Maybe they have bags under their eyes. Uh, Maybe they look like they haven't slept since the Kennedy administration. These kids- (laughs) It's an old kid. (laughs) (laughs) Been around a while. Uh, But so, you know, sleepy, sleepy kids- are maybe up at night worrying. Maybe they're having bad dreams or maybe they can't go to sleep because they're thinking about things that are really stressing them out. So so sleepy kids, sometimes there's other things. Sometimes it's environmental or maybe their household isn't conducive to sleeping or maybe they have an, a sleep disorder or a medical condition that's affecting their sleep. There's lots of things that could cause sleep problems. Mm-hmm. But if all of that has been ruled out and you've still got a kid who is just not sleeping and looks excessively tired, anxiety could be the underlying thing there because their their worries are keeping them awake. Um, related to this, this is still like the fifth face, but like uninterested. If you've got a kid who maybe they're really bright and capable, but they just aren't interested in anything, it could be because their anxiety is zapping all their interest and just taking away all their energy. And so they just don't have anything left to give to, you know, algebra or, you know, spelling or whatever it is you want them to be interested in. But that seems like it might fall really close in line with depression. 
Mm-hmm. of being sleepy and just not showing interest in things. Yes. And then, and this is where diagnostically you can start to split hairs a little bit. Um, and again, it, it depends on the particular characteristics and the timeline and how much distress it's causing. So a child who is really, really sleepy, withdrawn, uninterested, maybe angry and irritable at times, that could be, that could qualify for a diagnosis of depression. And so that's where you definitely want to be talking with your, you know, pediatrician, your primary care physician, get referred to a counselor, you know, kind of get further assessment to figure out exactly what's happening because as, as we've discussed before, anxiety and depression are closely related, especially in kids. And it's sort of hard to know which one comes first or which caused the other, or if they're just kind of the same thing. Um, but if you're seeing a child who is extremely tired, sleepy, bags under their eyes, and you know, it, it as a teacher, it's a good idea to reach mm-hmm. out to parents and discuss what might be going on. As a parent, it's a good idea to monitor their sleep habits. Do they have, you know, this is where we got to be real careful with our screens. Mm-hmm. You know, if they're on their phones until three in the morning and then they're tired the next day, it maybe is an anxiety. It's just they're not sleeping because they're on their screens. And so um, you want to monitor any sort of sleep related issues because that's at the heart of so many different later in life diagnoses. If you're getting poor sleep, you are not going to be emotionally or physically well. And so sleepy kids, that's a red flag, something to pay attention to. Sleepy adults too. Yes. That would be yours truly. Um, (laughs) Number six. We're kind of in the physical realm here um, along the same lines of a child who's really sleepy or tired. Also kids who complain frequently of headaches, sore throats, stomach aches, other aches and pains. These can be signs of anxiety in an otherwise well child. And I I will... I know I've said this before, but my first symptom of anxiety, the first thing that like my parents registered that something wasn't quite right was I always had a stomach ache. I always felt sick. Something was always wrong. And now as an adult, I can tell the difference between, you know, a worry related physical complaint and an emotional physical complaint, but kids can't tell. They don't Mm -hmm. have the ability. They just know that something's not right. And I also think our biology plays a big role. I've met kids who all of their emotional stuff is experienced as just totally physical, like where you, you might have like seizures or headaches or all kinds of, you know, intense things going on physically. And at the root of it is an emotional difficulty, but then you've got kids who it's always emotional and they, they don't even register any of the physical complaints. And so it really, I think your, your physical chemistry, your experiences, your upbringing, how your parents treat you when you're feeling not well physically versus not well emotionally, um, because basically our, our bodies are going to keep giving off signals. And if something's not understood or interpreted and, you know, adhered to, then another alarm is going to come up. And so Hmm. with kids who, you know, maybe they don't know how to say I'm sad or they don't know how to say I'm worried or they don't know how to say, you know, what if something really bad happens? They might say, I have a tummy ache or I don't feel good or I think I'm sick. That's, this is another important thing. And I I know as a second grader, that was me. I was constantly like, I don't feel good. I need to go to the nurse. And then I wanted to go home, you know? And so that, that is very common, especially, and I would say first through third grade or so, you're going to see a lot of kids, you know, with physical stuff that might actually be something emotional. Yeah. And I mean, and they don't feel well. I think about Mm -hmm. even as an adult, when you get nervous or anxious about something that's going to happen, you know, your heart beats fast, you might get a little sweaty and you don't, you don't feel Mm -hmm. right. So I, I get it. All right. uh, Number seven. Number seven. Like a game show host. Yeah. (laughs) This is a kind of anticlimactic here, Chad. So the seventh phase of anxiety is there might be no evidence whatsoever that the child has anxiety. Ooh, I think that's very climactic because that's intriguing <laughs> yeah. and puzzling. Yes, it is. And so you may have a child that that is, 
you know, maybe super bright, super productive, does really well in school, has lots of friends, everything is awesome, right? The the Lego science yeah. song. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they might be miserable and they might be worried all the time. And they they might have a variety of different types of worries bouncing around there. It might be performance. It might be they're doing so well because they are anxious if they don't. It might be that their high performance and all these things is based on an underlying anxiety issue. So this is where conversation and really knowing your kid is important because they may not show you any red flags. You just have to have a, a, you know, a dialogue with them. You have to kind of know, and, and if they're expressing lots of worried thoughts, if they do get upset, if they get a bad grade, if they, you know, they miss something or they're, you know, those kinds of things are causing a lot of distress. There might be something underneath that. And it's worth talking to them about. I'm wondering, going back to our last episode, uh, what about me, where we talked about siblings, I'm wondering if something like this can be because the kiddo with the anxiety or the emotional uh, disorder takes so much attention from the parents that the the sibling might just kind of be, I'm not going to rock the boat because my parents are spending so much time and effort and energy on that child, but yet I'm still anxious, but I'm just going to pretend everything's hunky-dory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that yeah. can play a role. Sometimes family okay. dynamics contribute. And so if you've got, you know, if you've got a family and there's a couple of kids, maybe three, four kids, and one or two of them have more, you know, needs, or I think you've used the term emotionally expensive in, in a previous episode. I like that. Yeah, I also um, use the term emotional platter. So let's not give me too much credit. <laughs> Right, never mind. Your words are not great. I don't know. Uh, but but so if you've got that kind of a dynamic, then you might have a kid who maybe they're more, you know, quiet or withdrawn by nature, but because this these other children or other child are are showing things in this more loud, um, observable way, like this other kiddo might fade and their anxiety might not be visible, but it might still be there. And but it's there. But it's there. And I think, you know, when we think about like workaholics and overachievers and people who just, you know, and maybe I'm like disclosing too much of how I see the world as I share this, but there's those people that just look like they have it all, right? They've got it mm-hmm. together and they, they're, they're perfect and they, they've got, there's, there's anxiety behind all that, right? Their life isn't perfect. They have worries. They have things that they're, you know, demons that they're sure. fighting um, every day and trying to keep it all together. And so the, the thing to keep in mind, and I think that, you know, I've seen the memes and the things that go around on social media, but like everybody's fighting a battle, you know, and, and yeah. not all of our, not all of our diagnoses or disorders or difficulties are visible to others. And and so be kind to everyone you meet because you don't know what they're up against. So with kids, just because you've got a kid who's in the classroom or, you know, the daycare or in your house who on the surface seems to be, you know, productive and um, high performer and just, just got it together. It doesn't mean they're not worried about something. And so this is again, where conversations come in handy, where, you know, asking lots of questions. And that leads me to something else I want to say, this isn't directly related to our topic today, but it's something that I really like. Um, when my kids go to see their primary care physician, they fill out these little questionnaires and they're usually about emotional mental health things mm-hmm. and parents don't help them. Like they're given directly to the kids to fill out. And then I don't get to see it as the, the, the nurse or the, the, primary care physician or the pediatrician reviews it with the child. And so they're getting an opportunity to express things that they might not otherwise feel comfortable talking about. And so with my kids, it's been really, I mean, at first, you know, I'm like, no, I'm a counselor. Like I should see those. (laughs) Those are my kids. I should see those. Um, But it was actually really kind of cool to have them have a place where they could kind of voice that. And then in the end they showed it to me and it was fine. Mm -hmm. Like the kids wanted me to see it. 
Um, but I think that is is kind of a cool thing. And so sometimes anxiety surfaces like that. You might not see it. There might not be any visible evidence of it in the classroom or in their day-to-day performance, but maybe they go in and they have an opportunity like that and they tell their their pediatrician or their primary care physician, like, I've been worrying a lot. I'm having a hard time sleeping, you know? And so then you might you might find out that way. Off of that, Nikki, if your child is in therapy, should the parents be with the child in therapy or is it good for the child to go see the therapist one-on-one if they're able to? Meaning like if they don't have that separation anxiety or something, if they're if they're willing to. It's going to depend some on the child's preference, some on the parent's preference and, and what's going on and what, what help they might need, but also on the, the therapist's expertise. Because I know therapists that do better with family, you know, okay. that, that they can actually help more by interacting with both the parent and the child. Um, but I also know therapists who are like, nope, no parents. We're going to talk about this. This is your kid's space. It depends on the age of the child too. So, you know, kids over the age of 12, we typically give them a say like, and you know, do you want mom or dad in here? Do you want to be by yourself or, you know, and and an ideal situation would allow for both where, you know, the kid gets some time and then parents get to join either at the end of sessions or every other or once a month or something like that. So that, because I I don't believe like kids don't live in a vacuum and then like we can't hold them responsible for making changes and how they're coping without the support of family and friends. And so I do think that a blend is nice, but I've certainly met with kids where, you know, I seldom have much to do with their parents because that's just, that's what the parent and the child have agreed on and all the proper forms are signed and it's it's fine and the kid is getting what they need. Um, but I've also met with kids where it ends up being more therapy for the parents because they're the ones needing the support and learning new ways to do things to mm-hmm. help their child feel better. So it can be any combination of things. There's really not a, a better way, you know, unless what your child is telling you is yeah. we need to do this different than yeah. it's probably something to listen to. Yeah. We, we found parent sessions to be very helpful because um, you can let a little bit more free talk happen. And I would think the same thing for the child if they don't feel comfortable saying things around their parent. And I give this advice to anybody, aunts, uncles, coaches, teachers, um, neighbors, anybody that's an adult in that kid's life to be in a safe place they can go. And if there ever is a case they need to say something to that adult that they don't feel comfortable bringing to their parents, I think that's a good thing, a good relationship to have with that child. Yep. That's, it's always good to give them permission to share with the people they trust. Um, okay. At the beginning of this episode, you challenged me with trying to find number eight. Mm-hmm. And I think I might have it, but okay. I also feel like I'm on Family Feud that I'm going to give the answer and it's <laughs> going to get a big red X because it's wrong. But something <laughs> in dealing with these seven faces and uh, examples, something I didn't notice and I thought was kind of plain to see was like a panic attack. If a child has a panic attack for no apparent reason, and I've seen that happen in children that they feel like they can't breathe, they feel chest pain and their heart's beating fast, that that's probably a pretty sure sign of a anxiety disorder. Maybe not. Maybe you have a panic attack and get over it. It's pretty solid. It's pretty solid. (laughs) So here's the deal. Like if this was a game show, you win the car because that is that that's a definite one. And I I think I was thinking more subtle, but now that you've said that I've actually thought of a few more reasons to do this. (laughs) This episode's gonna go on forever. But yeah, so a panic attack or any sort of panic like symptoms, that's it's an obvious, you know, like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I missed it face of anxiety. Um and and it does happen. I mean you're gonna see I shouldn't say this because I haven't actually like checked statistics on it, but um, I think it is more common to see adolescents and teens having panic-like symptoms, but kids, kids can too. Little mm-hmm. kids can too. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's a clear one. And, you know, those are, those are usually situations where like you can't, 
miss it and you probably need to get the child out of the room, get them into, you know, counselor's office or something, bring someone in to help them. Like that's, that's a very frightening experience and kids need support in that situation. And it's very frightening to watch Uh too, because they, they legit feel like they're dying Mm -hmm. and that's not even an exaggeration. Never had one, but I've witnessed it and it's, it's a scary, scary thing. So, um, let's see, then if we're, (laughs) tell them what they want, Johnny, Hey, (laughs) do a game show. Any anything else you said you thought of a couple more you want to run yes. through a couple real quickly? Yes, so there was another one that came to mind when you mentioned panic attacks and this was a way that that mine surfaced in second grade and I re and I at the time of course did <laughs> I didn't realize it, but asking lots of questions. So lots of times when kids, like I would, if my hair looked different than usual, I'd be like, does my hair look okay? Or like one day I wore socks yeah. with a pair of shoes that like really didn't, it wasn't, it was like athletic socks with just shoes. And I remember asking my teacher like, is this okay? Is anybody going to make fun? You know, so being not like- not taking a- yes for an answer. Like, are you sure? Really? <laughs> yeah. That- yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then worrying about it all day anyway. So like kids who ask a lot of questions or need a lot of reassurance that mm-hmm. they're doing well, or kids who, you know, along those same lines, they're working on projects, but they can't get started on their own because they just, they're like <laughs> drowning in self-doubt. Like they're trying to write a story or an essay and they're like, I don't know where to start. And they need the teacher to almost like sit there and feed them information to get them going. That's another version of anxiety that you'll see in a classroom for sure. All right. Very interesting. Anything else? Well, gosh, if you give me more time, I'll probably think of 20 more. Um, (laughs) Sorry, we're out of time. We'll be right back after this commercial break. (laughs) On our next episode, we're going to get a little bit, uh, dare I say, (laughs) Halloween-y. If you must. (laughs) Sorry. We're going to talk about phobias and different types of phobias that you can have. Um, Most every phobia has a name. So we're going to talk about some of those coming up on our next episode. It's going to be so spooky. Ooh. Well, we sincerely appreciate you spending some time with us here at Scrambled. As always, if you think uh, you know someone who could benefit from this content, please share it with them. Our whole goal in starting this podcast was to start a conversation, and the conversation continues with you. 